So, but anyway, we're in Lesson 72 of Matthew, and we're going to skip over chapters 24 and 25 and move to chapter 26. And the reason is I want to continue with this narrative of the last week of Yeshua's life. And those chapters are parables and teachings about the end of days. So we'll come back to those during the uh, fall festivals, because the theme of the fall festivals is, of course, the end of days and the return of Yeshua. But chapter 26 opens with Yeshua again telling his disciples that of his soon coming death. And it's getting ever closer. And the response, also the response of the chief priests and the elders of the people over what Yeshua had said and done over the last few days. And so let's read the first few verses here. It said, when Yeshua had finished saying these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Yeshua in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. And so here, Matthew records Yeshua giving us the timing of when all of this is happening. He says, the Passover is just two days away. You know, that sounds really specific, like we could really narrow it down. The problem is, what did he mean by Passover? Listen to what Mark says in chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. He says, now Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Yeshua and kill him. Now he says Passover and unleavened bread. And one of the things that's hard to do to pin down the exact day of Yeshua's death is because some of the terms are so ambiguous. The Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on the 15th of the Hebrew month of Nisan. And the slaying of the Passover lamb happens according to the Mishnah around 3 in the afternoon on the 14th of Nisan. And to give you an idea why this is so confusing is that many in Yeshua's day and today as well would designate the 14th as the start of unleavened bread because everyone in their household would already be eating unleavened bread by that day. They would have already fulfilled the commandment to remove all leaven from their homes and so to avoid recontaminating their home they'd be eating unleavened bread by the 14th, one full day before the feast actually began. So if the, feast, if the text says the start of unleavened bread, you have to kind of determine what is meant by that. Is it the 14th? Is it the 15th? Another thing that's confusing is the gospel narratives tell us that Yeshua has what is obviously a Passover Seder with his disciples. The Last Supper, we're told, is a Passover Seder. Luke says this in chapter 22. In verse 14, when the hour came, Yeshua and the disciples reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I mean, it doesn't get a whole lot clearer than that. Yeshua is eating with his disciples a Passover Seder before he suffers. But no more than you get done reading that and you move on to the book of John. You get to chapter 18 and verse 28 and it says this. Then the Jews led Yeshua from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. Now it was 
early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So this statement leaves us knowing that Yeshua has eaten his Passover Seder, yet these men have not eaten the Passover Seder. So how can Yeshua have eaten his Seder and these men not yet have eaten their Seder? Because we just read that Yeshua has had his Seder and is about to suffer. So we're left with the question, how could Yeshua have had a Seder one full day before Passover that's spoken of in the book of John? Well, as you can imagine, there's been numerous reasons offered for all of these but all of them are somewhat less than absolute proof because there's just no absolute proof. And the Torah says you're supposed to slaughter that lamb between the evenings on the 14th of Nisan. Well, I'll tell you what I decided. I decided years ago that I just wasn't going to argue about it anymore. (laughs) About 10 years ago. Because there's no one thing you could point to to be that was decisive proof that Yeshua had a Seder except that verse in Luke in the description of the meal. You either had to accept it or not. And I, for one, had accepted it. However, over the years that I've studied, I have found some things that would allow for this. You have to consider that the Essenes didn't participate in the temple service yet. They ate the Passover. As I said, terms are ambiguous and there could have been a discrepancy in calculating the actual date. You know that there were actually two calendars at that time as well as there are today. People talk about two calendars. The Essenes had one and the Pharisees had another. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. There was the Enochian calendar which was a calendar that was done by calculation and then there was the lunar calendar and it was a calendar done by observation of the new moon. Well, guess what? There's nothing new under the sun because that's the same argument that's going on today. Which one do you follow? But the point is, I don't know that we'll ever know until Yeshua returns and we can ask him. But one thing I'm convinced of, and that is Yeshua had a Seder, and yet he was crucified at the same time the rest of Israel was slaughtering the lambs in the temple. And I'm convinced of that because my Bible says so, and that's my highest authority. So Yeshua again tells his disciples that he will be crucified by the chief priests and the elders, but they didn't want to arrest him openly because they didn't want to cause a riot. Remember, on these festival days when all Israel was assembled together, the leaders of the people are on high alert for trouble. Because of this huge gathering of people, trouble could get out of hand really easily. Also, as you might imagine, there's a lot of people up there trying to gather followers. Pseudo-messiahs were at these gatherings, looking to promote themselves and gather a following. And Matthew tells us exactly that they plotted to arrest Yeshua in some sly way and kill him, but not during the feast because they didn't want to cause a riot among the people. And so they plot to arrest Yeshua so there will be no trouble because they don't want to do it in such a way that the arrest and death would cause the very riot they're trying to avoid. When you read these things, though, and you consider all that we have covered over the last year concerning the Messiah, you see just how far the wicked will go to cover the truth. You know, we spoke of just a few weeks ago in the story of Nicodemus coming to Yeshua at night and how he said, we all know you're a man of God. The Sanhedrin knew that Yeshua was a man sent by God. 
And understand that at, at all of his healings and so forth, there were different Sadducees and Pharisees were present at many, if not all, of Yeshua's healings, his miracles, his raising the dead, his teachings. His wisdom had confounded them time after time. And yet knowing that, they still plot to kill Yeshua. And it shows their unbelief. It shows their lack of concern for God. Or it shows if they even believe in God. It shows how corrupt unbelief will make you. That you can look at the truth in the face, turn away from the truth. And not just turn away, but try to destroy and silence the truth. But let's read on here. It says, While Yeshua was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which he poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. The perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Yeshua said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor will always be with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so Yeshua, a couple things here. Let's start with Simon the leper. Yeshua is in the home of Simon the leper. How is that? Think about it. People came up early for Passover to cleanse themselves to ensure they were ritually pure for the festival. And yet here we see Yeshua in by what these words would seem to be a very unclean place, the home of a leper. And not just that, he'd taken his disciples into this unclean place as well. Now some say he healed the leper, but I can tell you that the text doesn't say that, so that's just conjecture. So how is this? Well, it's really not that hard. And no, Yeshua hasn't taken his disciples into an unclean place. When it says Simon the leper, it probably doesn't mean that he had an active case of what we call leprosy. Understand that many things at this time would have been called leprosy. However, we only have one disease that we call leprosy. Hansen's disease or something like that. And it's a terrible disease. But that's not what's referred to here. They had many skin diseases that they termed leprosy. He could have had a skin disease like eczema that came and went. And Simon at this time had been declared by the priest to be clean. And even though he was unclean at this time, he still could have been known as Simon the leper. What's really important, though, is what follows in this story. We get this story of a woman unnamed in this version of the story that Matthew gives us. And I say in this version because a similar story is in each of the Gospels. However, they, they vary in each Gospel a little bit. And one varies quite a bit. In one, the woman is named Mary, the sister of uh, Martha and Lazarus. And one says six days before Passover. In Luke's version, she washes Yeshua's feet, not with perfume, but with tears. So how do we reconcile this and still claim inerrancy of the Gospels? Well, it's really not that hard. It very well may be that we're looking at two different but very similar events. 
which would account for this. You know, I think if you look at your Gospels, many of the discrepancies between the Gospels can be accounted for in this way. Oftentimes, we're going to read what would seem to be the very same teaching in several Gospels, but somewhat different, a little bit different focus. And in the past, we've always tried to reconcile those things and call them the same event. But they very may well be two separate events. Yeshua using the same teaching with a slight variation according to his audience. Teachers do this all the time. At least I know I do it all the time. That's why you hear so many things over and over again. There's no reason to think that Yeshua didn't do it as well. So we may have Matthew citing one instance and Luke another. In the same way, so we may have multiple events here as well. Today, however, we're going to focus on Matthew's account. I'm not going to spend much time looking at the differences in these stories. The woman who, in Matthew's version, we really don't know a whole lot about her. But she comes to Yeshua, and as Matthew says, with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. The book of Mark gives us a little more information about this jar of perfume. It says it could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And so what we have here is a very expensive gesture on the part of this woman. And the disciples protested this gesture, saying it could have been given to the poor. And really, when you think about it, this would have been a reflection of their master's teachings. This would have been a perfect reflection of Yeshua's teaching because many of his teachings and at the core of many of his parables are about giving to the poor, giving to equality, storing up your treasure in heaven. However, Yeshua at this gesture takes a different posture and he says, uh, speaks of it as a great mitzvot. And then he says, you'll always have the poor with you but you all always have me. He didn't say this as if to say the things that you do for Yeshua take precedent over the poor because if you just remember back to chapter 25, the story of the sheep and the goats, he makes it clear what you do for the poor, you have done for him. But he says this in regard to this specific event and he gives this reason. He says, she poured this perfume on my body. She did it to prepare me for burial. Yeshua tells us that her motive was to prepare her, him for burial. Remember, he opened up with Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to cru- be crucified. There was something about this that the disciples were unwilling to accept because if you judged it, their behavior, you would think they would, that they were unaware that Yeshua was going to be crucified. You'd think that they did not believe the words of Yeshua. Think about it. I mean, if you were with the Messiah and you truly believed he was the Messiah, the Son of God, as Peter has declared in the past, and he told you he was going to die in two days, and you saw all of the other things that he had spoken of come to be, and all the healings and so forth come to be, wouldn't your behavior be a bit different than theirs seems to be? At least I know mine would. I'd be hanging on his every word. I'd be asking him questions because I knew this amazing teacher and prophet, the one I had called Messiah, the son of David, the son of man, and Lord would soon not be with me. I'd want answers to all the mysteries I could think of. 
because he's the one who could give them. Well, in the narrative, the only one who has taken Yeshua's words to heart seems to be this woman. Because Yeshua says she was preparing him for burial. Indicating, hey, she got it. She believed Yeshua had a mere two days left to live and she was going to do this beautiful thing for him while he was with her. And look at the value she placed on it. This gesture pouring a year's wages on his head. This woman loved the Lord. Perhaps she was a recipient of a healing from the Messiah. Or Messiah had in some way helped her. If we look to Luke's Gospels, he tells us that the one in his version was a prostitute. So maybe if this is the same event, this would be the reason for her gratitude. All that Yeshua had done. And all of these are possible. Another possibility, perhaps she was acting on some word she had received in prayer by the Spirit to do this. And I say that because this is the only place that Yeshua is anointed in such a way. Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7, speaks of the Messiah. It says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And I also want you to think about one other possibility. Yeshua is about to begin his ministry on earth as priest. He throughout his ministry thus far has been prophet and teacher, but now his ministry as priest is about to begin. He's about to offer himself as a ransom for many. And if you read Exodus 29 and Leviticus 21, you'll find that priests were anointed before their service began. If we read Psalm 133, it says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity, like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So think about it. Was this the anointing, the anointing that would single the beginning of his ministry as priest? It's something to think about. But for sure, we know the woman's motive. It was to prepare Yeshua for burial. Something that had eluded the disciples. And the point is, her faith in the soon coming death of Yeshua, that Yeshua had spoken of, had touched this woman. And she was doing what no other not even the closest of disciples were doing, taking the last precious moments with Yeshua and doing whatever she could to comfort him. And for this amazing belief and this amazing faith, Yeshua tells everyone whatever, uh, tells everyone what her reward will be. He says, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I want you to think about something. What a statement that is. Think of how many people have confessed Yeshua through the centuries. And even in the first century alone, Acts 21 tells us myriads of Jews believed. Tens of thousands of Jews believed. Came to faith and love for Messiah. But we're told 
wherever the gospel is preached, this woman will be remembered in this amazing light. I find that amazing. An amazing example of what trusting the words of Yeshua will get you. What clinging to his words will do for you. She trusted his words when no one else was willing to accept what he had said as truth. The truth of his death was more than they were willing to accept, but this one woman believed. Even the hard words of Yeshua. Now, juxtaposed to this tremendous act of faith, we then get this in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked him, what are you willing to give me if I hand over you, hand him over to you? And so they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Juxtaposed to this amazing gift, we get the story of Judas and the betrayal of the Messiah. And we're, here we have the narrative of one who did not believe. And the direct cause of Yeshua being handed over to his enemies because of his unbelief and his greed. Not only are these two examples of faith juxtaposed together, but we also get juxtaposed together the amounts of money. The gift the woman in her gratitude, the gift of the woman in her gratitude and her faith in Yeshua and for her and her love for him brought what was called a year's wages in perfume in the Gospel of Mark. The amount of Judas' betrayal, the amount of Yeshua's is sold for a mere 30 pieces of silver. Think about it. Here's one who traveled with Yeshua, heard all of his teachings, watched the miracles he did, watched him give relief to the sick, make the blind see, the lame walk, but he did not believe. Not only that, Judas had considered all that Yeshua had done and whatever he could do for the people of Israel in the future, the healings he had done, the miracles he performed, the wisdom he had displayed, and not just that, he'd also experienced the master's love and friendship toward him, and he valued all of that at no more than 30 pieces of silver. And for this one act of unbelief, this one act of devaluing the gift and the love of Yeshua, he too will be remembered wherever the gospel is recounted. And so we have juxtaposed for us one act of faith and one act of unbelief. One act of where Yeshua is valued and one where Yeshua is devalued. And amazingly, the reward for each is the same. To be remembered wherever the gospel is preached. I often point out to people, you know, often you've heard me say this before, I'm pointing out to people that we, we often have behaviors that we don't want other people to see. Things that we do in our own homes that we don't want others to see. But there's one who sees everything that we do. There's something else we should remember. And that's is with everything that we do will be remembered. And so we should keep at the forefront of our minds. How am I going to be remembered? As one with great faith? or as one without faith, as Judas will be remembered.
While the deeds were different, one good, one evil, the reward is the same. They'll be remembered forever. One with contempt and one with praise. And so we have to ask ourselves, will you believe every word Yeshua has spoken as the woman who prepared him for burial, believing even the hard words of his death? Or will you take, like the disciples, be remembered for only believing the words you choose to believe? Those that line up with what you expect of Messiah. Those that line up with what you would like Messiah to do. Those that keep within your expectation of Messiah. Those of your own imagination. I want to skip for back for a moment. I want to read just... I want to strip the narrative of this away and read just these words because they're so poignant. Yeshua says, As you know, Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which he poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. And Yeshua says, She's poured this perfume on my body. She did it to prepare me for burial. Something was not lost to the woman what Yeshua was about to do for all of us. He was about to become a ransom for those who trust in him. And she may be the first to show this trust and acceptance of the plan of God, which was to take one righteous man from among the nation as a ransom for the rest. She may be the first to accept that Messiah had to suffer and die and be raised Certainly the disciples hadn't come to grips with it yet. They won't even come to grips with it until they see him risen. The woman must have had some sense of what is transpiring here. And she's the first to do something in gratitude for what Yeshua is about to do. Think about something else as we close this out. Yeshua knew everything he has done over the last few days was going to seal his fate. Think of it. At a time when the rulers of Jerusalem are looking for subversives, they're looking for pseudo-messiahs, those often claiming to be Messiah, why would Yeshua purposely come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfilling Zechariah 9? Do you not think that he knew the consequences of that action would be what would be thought of him? Why would he then go to the temple and overturn the tables of those selling there, defying the priesthood who were made wealthy by those tables? Yeshua knew the fate, what his fate would be. If he went to the temple and defied the chief priests by calling them and the temple a den of thieves. And then in the audience of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in essence, he tells them that he is the Messiah reciting scripture where David is calling his son Lord. Silencing them so that they couldn't even ask another word. He knew that he could not cause these men to be embarrassed in such a way and not expect some retaliation. Then to return and pronounce the woes on the Pharisees, do you really think that you could say things like that to one of these men who even the priests feared without consequence? You see, everything he does after he enters into Jerusalem is leading him to be a ransom for many. He knows it. 
And he continues toward the task the Father has given him to do, the task he was assigned to do before the creation of the world. The free choice he made even before the first man had been created, that he would come and pay the ransom owed by men who had transgressed God's Torah. The first man used his free choice to reject his creator because he wanted to be like God. The second man lowered himself to become like the first man to once again make him in the image of his creator. And nothing would keep him from his task, his promise, and his love for the creation. I want you to think about something. He didn't have to come here. It was his choice. He didn't have to ride that donkey. He could have walked into Jerusalem. It was his choice. He did not have to incite the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He could have kept a low profile and avoided what happened, but it was his choice. On the night of his arrest, he could have fled. He knew they were coming, and he knew they were being led by the one who will be remembered wherever the gospel is preached. But he didn't flee. He stayed. At his trial... Think of it. He could have chosen his words carefully and avoided death. He knew the hearts of men. He knew the words they were going to speak before they spoke them, but he offered no words in his defense. He chose to remain silent, and even when he did speak, he incited them further. And when he stood before Pilate, he could have offered a defense, but he chose not to. This is the one who was at creation, who walked on water, who changed water to wine, who fed thousands of few loaves of bread, who commanded demons. He could have avoided what happened many times that evening and the next day he could have stopped the whole thing in a moment's time. He commanded demons. How much more could he have commanded angels to save him? But he chose not to give in to his flesh and become a ransom for many, for you and for I. The first man after his transgression said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. It's all your fault. You put her here. But the second said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. So the question that's always before us is this. What will we do with the choices we make today and tomorrow and every day? Amen? Amen.